Salve! As we move swiftly into the holiday season, things are beginning to feel celebratory, so it only seems fitting that today's podcast be a longer episode around a very special subject. Stay tuned for my conversation with Mary Shea, Director of Marketing and Hospitality at Querceto di Castellina, a family-run vineyard and agriturismo in the heart of Tuscany. Don't miss our chat about one of Tuscany's and Italy's best-known and most beloved exports, as well as one of my favorite topics of conversation, wine or vino. Grazie mille e buon ascolto. Buongiorno mondo and welcome back to 15 with Bosca, the podcast. I am thrilled to have with me today Mary Shea. Hi, Mary. Hello. Welcome to 15 with Fosca. And um, so just a little bit about Mary before we dive right into our conversation. Mary graduated from NYU with a degree in journalism. And after that, she enjoyed careers in advertising in New York, Boston, and LA. Since then, Mary has worked in the wine and hospitality business, crafting unique food and wine experiences at Querceto di Castellina, where she is the director of marketing and hospitality. So I'm so happy, Mary, because we're talking about one of my favorite subjects today, which is wine. So <laughs> fortunately, we have that in common. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank goodness. So that I think we should just dive right in. Sure. And I, I want to ask you how you got into the, the world of wine. Oh, goodness. It's a, you know, it's a bit of a long and kind of winding uh, road or story, but um, I'll try to I'll try to keep it as, a, as kind of brief as possible. But um, I mean, one, I grew up in a household where, I mean, my father, I mean, he was a wine lover. Okay. Um, he also, honestly, he and, and my mother, they um, got me the into the, tra- or I had the travel bug early on mm-hmm. um, because they, they took me for trips with them. So I went to England, um, went to Switzerland, um, and they were just, yeah, they, I mean, my father is always kind of a big foodie and into, into wine. Okay. So that's definitely probably where my passion first, first started. Okay. Um, my passion for it- the Italian wine world actually started in college. Um mm. Um, so I went to, as you mentioned, I went to NYU. Um, I actually ended up minoring in German. Um, so I studied oh, the German, German language. Okay. And I went and I studied abroad in college, and I went and I studied abroad in this tiny little town, actually, in Bavaria, um, mm. so in Germany, for, for a semester. And my program was an Italian wine producer. Um, so, and uh, her name is Chiara Coffele. Um She became an incredibly good friend. She happened to have some bottles of her family's wine um, at, you know, so during this uh, study abroad program, I was not expecting to be drinking, you know, some lovely Italian wine. Right. I was expecting to drink beer. Um, right, and, and maybe be... some rice wine. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so that's probably, I mean, she kind of, you know, told me her family's story and whatnot, and so I, I fell in love with that. Fast forward to, gosh, this was probably when I was in my late 20s, I ended up actually moving and living with my friend um, in the town where her family has the winery. So um, the name of the town is Suave. Which is very famous because a lot of the wines we see in the U.S., I mean, if I think about like growing up and just going to liquor stores, you know, with my parents, that sounds kind of awful. But you know, suave, suave bowl, right? Doesn't that doesn't that remind <laughs> you? Can you still see the label? Oh, like, for from sure. your childhood, I remember yes. that. Okay, yes. so go on. So no, you were in suave. So I was in suave, and this was a very different suave. I mean, mm. it wasn't. I think suave bowl. It was like the first kind of suave wine I think in, so too. introduced into right. the U.S. Right. Um, but my friend, I mean, she had a uh, really lovely. Now they're actually they're certified organic. Um, but. I, uh, you know, they have this lovely uh, winery in Suave. 
Uh, her brother is the winemaker. She handles more of like the PR side. So I help them out a bit in their tasting room. And then when she'd go to like wine tasting events and things like that, I would help out. Um, so that's definitely where, you know, my love of the Italian Obviously. wine world started. Um, but then I ended up moving back to the U.S. Um, for, for work. And eventually actually made my way out to Napa Valley. So I lived in Napa for two years. Um, I was still working in advertising. I wasn't necessarily working for a winery at the time. Um, I did a little consulting work, but um, but that's about it. Um, but I just always loved being surrounded by by vineyards um, and, uh, you know, that kind of wine culture. And also places where obviously like culinary side was, uh, you know, really important part exactly. um, as well. And right. so... I think, you know, when I moved back to the U.S., because I actually originally, after Italy, moved back to Boston, where I've been living for, God, on and off for, like, 10 years. And, and I love Boston. It was, I, I mean, too. it's a great, I mean, it's such a great city. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but I just, I missed being surrounded by, you know, vineyards and, yeah. and winemakers and whatnot. And so I was like, you know, where in the U.S. can I, you know, kind of try to recreate right. that? Um, and so, yeah. And so California. Hence, exactly. Um, so I ended up in Napa, which I have to say, I, I mean, have you been to? I have. I spent a lot of time there because, you know, I, I worked for Stanford for a long time. Oh, yes, and so yes. I would often go to the Bay Area and, you know, would often go um, to Napa, Sonoma, et cetera, yeah. even the Santa Cruz Mountains. There's so much winemaking there, so much good wine there. Very much so. Um, so every time I would go out, actually, I would make a point. Of, of making sure that I would go out um, to those places, which are also beautiful. I mean, very much similar in a lot of ways to Tuscany, to yeah. our reality, you know, yeah. landscape-wise, oh, sure. microclimate-wise. So talk a little yes. about your time in Napa, because that also I know was was definitive or determinative in <laughs> what what your life is now. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of funny. Um, I uh, you know, because I when I was in Napa, I actually I was I was pretty much. I mean, I thought that I was going to settle there. Like, that's where I was going to oh, maybe like, sure. buy a house. Yeah. And, and basically, that was going to be my life. And then I um, and then I met my husband. Yay! Um, yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so everything, yeah, kind of changed from there. So so my husband, his name is Jacopo. So his family, I mean, they actually, I mean, they own Corchetto di Castellina, um, the winery where I work now. Right. Um, and and so he actually sells quite a bit of wine in the U.S. It's his biggest export market, um, and uh, and so he was in California. Um, and this is gosh, it's ten will it be ten years ago actually in a wow. few weeks. Um, he was in California, basically kind of doing sales and promotions for the winery. And then we uh, we met through mutual friends um, over it was like a friendsgiving weekend. Um, they had rented a house in mm -hmm. Sonoma. We, they had dinner like the night before Thanksgiving at this this Italian restaurant actually in Napa Valley called Bottega. And that was where we where we met. And that was it. And now you're living the dream. That's what everyone tells me. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know. And you know, a lot of people say that to me too. And the thing is, I think a lot of what we do in this podcast, and it might be hard to do today because there's very little that's not dreamlike about right. you know <laughs> living in Tuscany and you know working at a vineyard like Corchetto di Castellina. But there are also, I'm sure, challenges that are uniquely Italian. So something I'm interested in um, before we go to talk more in detail about yeah. the vineyard is how do you, what differences do you find between working in the wine business in the U.S., in Napa, and now working in the wine industry here in Tuscany? Oh, goodness. You know, it's it's really interesting because I do get asked that actually quite quite a lot. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think... Napa was interesting because it was ve it's very organized, um, yeah. and there's just definitely, I mean, they they focused very early on in kind of establishing, like, all of the producers worked together to establish mm -hmm. Napa as, like, the wine, you That's know, right. tourism destination mm -hmm. um, in, in the U.S., um, 
And so when you go into these tasting rooms, I mean, you definitely feel that. I mean, they're incredibly, you know, curated experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some sometimes some people might say they feel perhaps, depending on the winery, right. obviously, a bit more commercial or a bit yeah, more a salesy. little artificial. Yeah, a little um, artificial. Let's see. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, and but that's obviously that's kind of a bit of a generalization, perhaps. But um, and. Uh, and that they're just, and also they're really expensive, like the tasting experiences and things like that. Um, Wine it's very is so expensive in the states. This is something we could have a long conversation <laughs> about. But yes. often I buy Italian wines in the states because yeah. domestic wines are way too expensive. So that's yeah. one of those funny things. I mean, at least in the New York area, having to do with distribution or whatever, you can get excellent Italian yes. wines, excellent French wines, and yeah. often spend much less than you would spend for a oh, California for sure. or even now wines coming from Oregon and Washington yeah, State. Yeah, oh, no. It's, it's fascinating. So. See, see, see. Fascinating. Well, it was funny. I used to go to, I mean, I'd go to restaurants in Napa, and I'd always, like, kind of seek out the Italian, you know, kind of the, the one or yeah. two Italian wines right. that were on the list yeah. um, because they were a lot more kind of accessible um, and reasonably yeah. priced. Um, and that's actually, it's one of the things I love about the Italian wine world a bit mm. in comparison is that I feel like it's a lot more accessible. Yeah. Um, so you can drink, I mean, to your point, you can drink beautiful wines um, and you don't have to spend, you know, kind of like an obscene amount of money. Exactly. Um, so Exactly. Um, and it's such a strong part of kind of like the culture. I mean, like the food and wine and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so that's something that I really like. Um, I mean, Italian wines um, or Italian wineries now, now, I mean, wine tourism, I mean, I think a lot of Italian wineries, I mean, I can also, I mean, Corcetto di Castellina included, definitely saw the opportunity and kind of opening your doors yeah. and starting to do, you know, wine yeah. tours and tastings and things like that. I actually say, I think one of the big differences, I think in the, in Italy, because a lot of wineries like we do, we do wine tasting lunches mm-hmm. um, and things like that. I feel like there's rules or like some laws in, in the U.S., especially in California, where not all wineries can actually offer kind Serve of like food. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do the culinary mm-hmm. component to it, which is so important. And, and that leads me to a couple of questions I wanted to ask you. One is I want you to speak specifically about Quercetto di Castellina and what you do there and why why it is such a special place. Because everyone I talk to, because you and I met in kind of a random way, as is often the case, because I'll tell our listeners, but Mary and I met at a a wine tasting event, and I tasted her wines, and I went up to her, and I was like, oh, I really like your wine. Here's my card. Give me your card. And I said, you know, come on my podcast. This was like back, you know, a few months ago. And then we ran into each other on the street with your adorable dog, (laughs) Elliot. And so we, I chatted you up, and I was like, oh, you really need to come on the podcast now. But anyway, everyone I meet, well, knows Quercetta di Castellina and speaks so highly of you and of the experience there. So tell me a little bit more. Tell us more about what you do at Quercetta di Castellina and how you manage, because I think you touched on two really important points. And one is the accessibility um, of good food and wine pretty much everywhere in the country and how fundamental that is because it's a cultural thing. Everyone should be able to eat a beautiful meal and drink a really good glass of wine. And there's something extremely simple but fundamental about that. So I want to talk more about that. But also, how can you at Quercetto di Castellina or how can a winery give authentic experience to those serious wine drinkers, connoisseurs, in a world of, you know, where 
maybe wine, I mean, wine tourism has definitely changed, right. um, but how do you keep that, sort of the sense I get when, when I speak to you and others about Crocetto di Casalina is one of authenticity. Um, so can you speak to that a little more? What, what do you do to cultivate that? Um, why is it so um, special a place, so different a place? Oh, well, that's, I mean, one that's like incredibly kind to, to hear. Um, that's what people say, Mary. Yeah. I mean, that's what the word on the street is. So, <laughs> <laughs> See, well, and I, it's funny, I can't, I mean, I can't take credit for, um, you know, kind of all of that. I, I think a lot of that comes from my husband and his, his family mm -hmm. and their approach. Um, so, I mean, when I started working for them, or with them, um, I mean, because one, we're in agriturismo, so we also have vacation apartments on the property. Um, my mother-in-law started that business in the late 80s. Um, she also started a Tuscan cooking school. Um, and then my husband founded the winery. He opened up the tasting room, God, at this point, probably 13, 14 years mm -hmm. ago. But it's really over the past six or seven years has, has changed. Really exploded, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and, and I think we do, I mean, we do struggle because... I think for us, and and I love that my husband and like his family are very much in alignment with this. Um, is that they just you know, we really want people to have an amazing experience. Um, and have a really personal experience. Yeah. Um, and because I mean, you never know. It could be somebody who goes who's visited you know twenty thousand wineries That's all right. over the world, or it could be somebody who had been like saving up mm -hmm. for an, you know an incredibly long time, and this is like their one opportunity to I don't know go out and visit a beautiful winery in the Tuscan countryside mm -hmm. or whatnot. Um, and uh. And so we always try to go and um, provide an exceptional, you know, kind of experience to people. And because that actually, even for us, it's so much more fun and satisfying Absolutely. that way. Like we could, I mean, don't get me wrong. There's t a lot of other wineries um, in our in our area that have gone kind of the more a bit more commercial route, like large, you know, like big working with huge big buses of people coming yeah. in. Um, and uh, and just you know, you'll you'll have a tasting, and there'll be you know, 60, 70 other people, you know, kind of out on the terrace or whatnot. That's that's not what Quercetti Castanina no. is about. It really is a family. You, you have, I mean, that's the sense that one gets is no. that it's definitely, there's a family there. There's an interest in making your guests feel at home. Yes. And, and you know, through the authentic meals that your mother-in-law prepares, through, you know, your, your, wine, your wine production, which is not as great as probably a lot of those, I mean, in terms of numbers. Yeah, no, exactly. Large. Yep. Um, see, see, see. Um, so also that you can maintain sort of a more niche or boutique yeah. quality, if you will, and give more bespoke experiences, especially right. to those. I think it's it's nice that you mention not only the aficionados, yeah. but those who maybe are just really getting their feet see, wet exactly. in the wine world, yeah. and you want to sort of welcome them into this it can be very confusing. And so let's talk about that for a second. We're both seasoned drinkers. We established <laughs> that well before well before we started the, the podcast this morning. So we're not drinking yet. Um, but how how would you or how do you um, bring bring people who don't have so much knowledge of Tuscan wines or of your wines? Um, how do you bring them closer to the experience? Or how what would you suggest to our listeners today um, to sort of um, close the gap between, um, you know, people who you know might not have so much knowledge right. about about Tuscan wines, let's say. No. Um, well, I think you know. I mean, it's you know, as I mentioned before, the fact that I think you know the Italian wine world is is more accessible, but. Um, I think because there is a very strict kind of set of rules and regulations, um, you know, when it comes to the production and like in different classifications and things like that, right. which I think for, 
I think for some people, I mean, I'll even for myself, you know, back back when I first started drinking Italian wines, it can be a bit overwhelming mm-hmm. and, and a bit intimidating, right. actually. Um, and and I think for us, we really try to kind of make it, you know, as easy as possible to to try to kind of understand. And like, and I mean, at the end of the day, when we're tours and doing tours and tastings and things like that. It's really about that person's individual palate and you exactly. know and kind of like what they what they like and whatnot. I also think for us, I mean, there's there's also a story, you yeah. know, behind our wines, which I think, you know, people really, you know, appreciate. So, you know, when they're coming, um, let's say it's somebody who maybe is not quite as, you know, like a wine aficionado right. or whatnot, um, you know, we try to make one kind of understanding the rules and regulations, you know, as as kind of manageable as possible and as simple as possible. Um, but then telling the stories behind the wines, you know, like why my husband started producing wine, like why he does, you know, kind of an or you know, we're certified organic, so why does he take more of a sustainable mm-hmm. approach, and what that actually means, you know, for us as a, as yeah. a winery. Um, and I'm trying to think, and then also kind of like the. Um, the food and wine component also, I think, helps a lot. Um, Absolutely. Um, because that's such, I mean, especially in, like, the Italian wine world, I mean, most Italian wines Italian wines inherently are meant to be enjoyed with food. That's right. Um, you know, so I think that also really helps because we do, I mean, yes, we can do just tours and tastings, but we do a lot of wine tasting lunches. And I think when people kind of sit down, they compare and contrast the wines with, like, the different dishes and stuff, they can really kind of see how, right. it, like, they just, you know, bring each other to exactly. life. Exactly. Um, so. so through these wonderful experiences where they're, and I've seen the pictures, I follow <laughs> you on Instagram, but, you know, these beautiful, you know, dinners or lunches and, you know, with these beautiful wines. And I think that um, it is it is fundamental to, to underscore, yes, a lot of it is personal taste, your palate, et cetera, but also... It's very hard to understand Italian wine culture without understanding Italian food culture. Oh, very much so. And and how important, you know, the quality of the ingredients is, you know, the the simplicity of the preparation. And it's all orchestrated in a way that, you know, the wine brings out the food, the food brings out the wine, and everything works in this really um, beautifully harmonious way. Yes. But I want to go back to something you said, which I think is really important. We started to talk about, and I would like to hear maybe a couple of, a story or two behind one of the wines, if you'd like to tell us. Oh, sure, of course, yeah. Um, But I do want to talk about sustainability, because I do see... um, such an increase in wine tourism yeah. that I'm starting to get a little worried. In other words, how um, it's become so popular. Uh, for example, you walk around Florence, you see these lines of people waiting at wine windows. <laughs> um, like, yeah. we, we could talk about that an, yes. another time, not knocking wine windows. But in other words, there is um, definitely all of a sudden this um, mass tourism that's related to, to wine and food, whereas it used to be something. And in some places... I think it still is very right. much a niche thing, but here in Florence and in the Chianti, um, it does risk becoming over tourism mm-hmm. the same way we see it sort of at the museums. So how do you um, ha- combat that? How do you mitigate that in a world where, yes, you want to be welcoming people, but you want to be welcoming people in a way that is in line with your vision, with your mission, with your commitment to sustainability. And so how do you balance those two things as a winemaker today? Wow, that's such a that's such a great question. I mean, I um you know, I think it kind of goes back to to what I said before about not like we are the way we do things is we don't do, you know, kind of like 
we've been we've been contacted, you know, some bike companies that have, you know, like the big tour buses and things like that um, and whatnot. And we've just strategic. I mean, we could have an enormous. I mean, like we could probably do two to three times, you know, like the number of visitors that mm-hmm. we do now um, if we said yes to those types right. of, you know, experiences. But are those types of companies? Sure. We strategically say say no. Um, yeah. and, and it's and I feel terrible because it's not like. It, you do want to make things accessible, and obviously, I obviously, mean, like, but, but it's just. I also, I just feel like if you're going to a winery, um, and you just you, ex- one, you appreciate it so much more. Mm-hmm. You get to learn so much more yeah. um, when you have somebody who has more time to actually dedicate yeah. to you personally and answer your questions. And I things agree. Like that. Smaller so, groups and intimacy. Like, People feel comfortable asking questions, engaging with you, engaging with you know, a sommelier or whatever, yeah. asking questions or taking a cooking so, class. Yep. Um, and so it all kind of, I think, just ties together. Yeah. And it's weird. I mean, it, I don't know if it 100% ties into the sustainability side, but perhaps, but but also kind of like you were talking about kind of like the mass tourism or, mm-hmm. or things like that. And just um, even with, like as an example, like events um, and things like that. So, I mean, we do, we do weddings at the property, um, but we only do, we strategically are like, you know, we're doing five or six a year. Okay. Um, because once again, we don't, we don't want to do like 25 or 30 because then I think each individual one starts to feel not quite as special. Or I get personal. that. Yeah. Also, we do, I mean, the vineyard dinners during the summertime. Which are beautiful. <laughs> That's, I mean, now we're in November, but I can't wait till those start. We when would, do they start uh, up we, again? Well, the, the first one will be June. So we do one once okay. per month from June to September. Okay. So because I'm always away. I often am away in the summer. Uh, so okay. I'm going to have to make the June one because yeah. I see the pictures and I'm like, why am I not there? When I was in yeah. the States this summer, I kept seeing the pictures uh, and I thought it's just such an enchanting place. Yeah. And I think that maintaining that is fundamental because you're in the middle of one of the most beautiful places yes. in the world. Yeah. And that needs to be preserved. So, and I know. think you're doing a great job with it. Because oh, it, thank it, you. It, I mean, it's the only way. If not, it's just everything becomes commodified. Yeah, you know? no, exactly. Um, well, and that's the thing. I mean, we've we we've had internal conversations about it because I can't tell you how many. I mean, we we could do probably even like you know twenty vineyard dinners during the season and have like two hundred people at each of them. But we're like, you know what? That's just not. It's not. It's not the right, you but know, kind of... it's also not sustainable yeah, ex- for you. Exactly. It's not Same. the life Same. that you want to have, Same. and it's not the the life that the vineyard wants to project. I mean, Same. you're one gets a real sense, and also the way people speak about you, you definitely, we talked about it earlier, but there is this sense of an intimacy, yeah. and it's not worth it to lose that, Same. you know, and you're being true to your to your vision, but also I think it's true to the the nature of the place itself. It, it would kind of clash with that kind of over tourism if you will or over visiting no exactly um so and it's like and i think just to our core we kind of feel better about doing things the way that we do i mean maybe we're obviously we're sacrificing you know probably sacrificing some business um on on some level um but i just you know for us i think we feel much better about being able to give the type of experiences that we do and Mm -hmm. honestly i think it's why people love to kind of i think so too continue to come back Mm -hmm. to us i mean we have people who have been coming to our vineyard dinners like every i mean i know consistently for like you know five or six years now and Um, so it becomes like family no exactly and the minute that stops then you just become another one of the many so tell me a story about one of the wines or one of your favorite stories about crochetta di castellina or or tell me about your favorite wine and its story Oh, wow. All right. So, I mean, I, I can't, I feel like I can't, um, I can't not mention um, the Laura County Classico, which is kind of, which the, it was the first wine my husband began producing in okay. 1998. So that's kind of like the, the classic red of the right. property. 
Laura is the name of my mother-in-law, so my husband dedicated that wine to, to Laura. Um, and it's actually sweet. The wine label has a little teacup plate on it that was hand-painted by my husband's grandmother in 1930. Oh, that's um, beautiful. And it's just, you know, I think it's, I don't, to me, it, it really is, oh gosh, how do you say this? It really demonstrates kind of the overarching kind of care and approach of my husband also, like mm -hmm. when it comes to things. So I think, you know, that the importance of the family side and also like just being able to, you know, basically craft a wine that also had, you know, it's obviously it's a beautiful, beautiful wine, um, but has a really nice kind of a, of a story behind, you know, behind the label and things right. like that. And obviously, I mean, like, uh, you know, giving a nod to, to his mom who basically was, you know, kind of made a lot of this all, all happen. Right. Um, you know, for us at Corchetto. Um, and so I couldn't not mention the Laura. I do have to say, though, the, the rosé, we do a rosé called Fortivo. Mm, I tasted that one. And, I, <laughs> yes, and that was yes. when I came up to you because I something that bothers me mm. is that, first of all, I love the name, and I'm going to let you Thank talk you. about it in a second, but I love rosés, yeah. and I love Italian rosés, yes. and they are very hard to find in the States where the market is inundated, or at least when this summer when I was in the New York area, yeah. it was very hard for me to find Italian rosés. I found a couple. Often you, it's it's easier to find Proseccos that are rosé. Yeah. Um, but mostly the rosés you find in the States are French or domestic. Yes. And so I'd be curious to hear, a let's talk more about Fortivo, because that was when I came up to you. I was like, wait, they make a great rosé. I love rosé. Yes. So tell me, and they ha it has a great name. Um, tell me more about Fortivo. And do you export it? To we, the U.S.? We do, actually. So it's funny. <laughs> My husband, it took some convincing to get him to do a rosé, actually. So that was kind of... And he'll, he'll admit this. And, and, I mean, he tells people when he does, like, tours and tastings. But he thanks you. He does, indeed. <laughs> yeah, I'll go up to people, like, that he's hosted. And they'll be like, oh, you're why, they, why he's doing a rosé. So thank you very much. You're um, a visionary. <laughs> you, that was good, a good move on your part. Thank you. So tell me more about Fortivo. Um, so it's a, you know, it's 100% Sangiovese, which is the indigenous mm -hmm. grape. Um you know, of the area. And, and it actually, it lends itself nicely to doing kind of a, you, and it, I think it's why probably maybe you and like a lot of people like it. It's, um, it's very kind of crisp, clean. Um, mm -hmm. it's a dry, I mean, a dry rosé. Really nice rosé, very versatile. Yes. Goes with a lot of different things. Yep. And it's, well, it's not sweet and it's not exactly. super light actually. It's so. really nice. So, um, and that was my first actually, um, wine naming experiment with my husband and his family. So, we called it Fortivo, which Fortivo translates to sneaky. Right. I mean, it's uh, and uh, and we just wanted a fun, playful name for the for the rosé. It actually the label has little paw prints mm -hmm. on it. It's adorable. Yeah. Yeah. I <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves it. It's really funny. Um, and the reason also is because my husband, he, the whole, oh gosh, it's kind of a longer story, but the, um, my husband produces a white wine and it's called Livia. Livia is the name of his niece. Oh, so okay. the label actually has her footprint on it from when she was like, oh. you know, two or three months old. It's definitely a more elegant white. Mm -hmm. So I actually thought of the rosé as kind of being the more playful cousin. Absolutely. To the Livia in yeah, a way, so yeah. hence Fortivo, and we're like, you know what? Let's put a little some little paw prints. Now, actually, with the new vintage, we have um, Elliot, our my dog. His actual paw prints are now. On the really? Label, so oh, yes, that so. then then that then we definitely <laughs> have to. And for anyone who doesn't know, I think Elliot actually has an Instagram page. He does indeed. He's yes. a very adorable Boston Terrier, yes. and so um, just FYI, if you're also fans of Boston Terriers, <laughs> you can get um, a cute label, a good, a really good bottle of wine with some very cute paw prints. So I wanted to um, to go back to a conversation about sort of your customers in your market. So you mentioned that obviously I imagine a lot of your business, if not most of it, is with U.S. clients, both coming to the to visit and also in terms of export. But where are the the um, you know where where are people 
coming from? Who, who comes to visit you and who, who's buying your wines and where, where are you sending them? You know, so it's, so it's a, a bit of a mix. So like if you, we just talk about like the agriturismo or vacation apartments, right. it's more, it's, it's like European. People I was going to say a lot of Northern Europeans probably. Yeah, but then we also do get a lot of uh, American clients as well. Um, with the wine side, yeah, I mean the, the U.S., as I mentioned before, is our, our largest market. And that's a combination of working with importers yeah. in different states, um, but then also um, you know, shipping directly to people's homes, which is right. something that has definitely grown over the years. Okay. Um, we do have a wine club, um, so that's also, um, you know, something that we've focused on over the years. And and we do actually, I mean, I'm trying to think of the other the other countries. We do actually, we were just in Switzerland for work, so we also do work in uh, Switzerland, Sweden, uh, Norway. We're going to be going to Norway actually after the, the holidays this okay. year. Um, so we do, it's not just the U.S., but the U.S., I mean, for, for Tuscan wines, for Chianti Classica wines. It's a huge wines, market. I mean, there's, there's, I mean, it's just the numbers, you know, just the sheer numbers. So going, do you spend a lot of time in the U.S.? Do you travel? Do you, for business, do you often find yourself going back or do you mostly operate here? So during the season, because we're just so busy, we're here. So that's usually from, let's say around like the, gosh, April until at least October. Yeah. Um, we always do at least one kind of big sales trip to the okay, U.S. per year. I would imagine, yeah. So, and we'll usually go for, gosh, I mean, a month and a half, um, if not two months. Um, basically, we'll do East Coast, West Coast, um, and we'll, um, one, it's a combination of one, we can kind of catch up with friends and family, right. but then it's also to kind of do some sales exactly. in the markets where we do, um, where we do sell the wines. Exactly, and you do that sort of when things are a little more dead here, yeah, exactly. which is, there doesn't seem to be too much of a down season anymore, but... But yeah, there's yeah, right? it's definitely changed, but we mm. actually we do close our vacation apartments from like November fifteenth until March fifteenth. Oh, we'll do some tours and tastings, mm-hmm. but definitely it's not the same volume. Um, so we'll usually go to the U.S. Gosh, somewhere, usually around like February or March, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and it's actually I have to say it's really fun because like we'll go you know, the different states where we do work and our um, importers will do, you know, wine tasting dinners sure. and events mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, and uh, and it's really fun for us because a lot of the times at these dinners, um, we'll have people who have either like stayed at the winery nice. or come and done tours and tastings at the winery come and join for the dinners. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really amazing because we walk into these events and we see so many familiar faces. That's really um, nice. Which is really fun. Like yeah. we just, we actually, we started selling in Denver a few, not, I mean, probably like two, three years ago. And we did our first, you know, wine dinner mm-hmm. in uh, at this amazing restaurant in Denver um, called The Bindery. And we walked in. I think, like, we knew, like, 70% of the people well, at this dinner. And there were, like, amazing. you know, 60 or 70 people, roughly. Right. Um, and, uh, and it was really, I mean, it was so, it was so fun. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think even our importers were like, how do you guys know everyone? <laughs> yeah. Well, oh. Uh, we don't know. We just do. But, um, no, I think you, you raise an, a, a really good point that I wanted to, to go back to, um, just talking about sort of how global wine has become mm-hmm. too, right? Yeah. And so I, I want you to tell me a little more about that. In other words, I see the change, but you mentioned it a little bit earlier in the conversation, and it's sort of how I was saying you had the perfect timing with the rosé. It sounds like your husband also um, had perfect timing when he started the winemaking, just in terms of how that seems to have coincided with really this boom mm-hmm. um, that seems to be happening in terms of how appealing wine tourism is now. So I guess what I, I'd like to know from you is sort of how... How has, you know, global wine tourism 
um, why has, I mean, why, what reasons do you have for, like, how do you explain the phenomenon? No, I'm just, because I don't know. I mean, yeah, I've always no, been no, a wine no. drinker. So how do you explain oh, that all of a sudden there's become this increased interest and increasing interest in wine tourism and wine travel and well, I do. I mean, oh goodness. I mean, I mean, I obviously lived in Napa, but I, I think we I, we do have to thank Napa and certainly yeah. in kind of the California wine world, the model a lot for yeah. that because it just it started to make it top of mind to people, or you know, like just like started to think that there's oh we could go and visit wineries right. and do wine tastings, and it wasn't just for maybe like people who are in the trade or like sommeliers and things like right. that. So I mean, I think that definitely, I think. Napa very much, you know, kind of helped mm -hmm. with that, um, especially when it comes to, like, American travelers and mm -hmm. things like that. Um, and, uh, God, you know what? I don't – I'm trying to think of, like, why. I don't know if it's because also, you know, over the past few years in particular, and, and I don't – I know this is terrible to bring this up, but like even like as an example, like the Stanley Tucci show on CNN. No, no, that's you think not about a bad example. Like, that's that's the wine window problem. See, see, I mean, so I don't want to call it a problem. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to offend anyone, and I love Stanley Tucci. Yeah. I just want to get it out there, but it is social media. I yeah. think. I mean, yeah. I'm going to throw this out there. Wine yeah. used to be something, at least in my, my the way I grew up in a way very similar to yours. My dad mm -hmm. is a serious wine drinker, yeah. so there was always sort of a you know, an issue of wine spectators yeah, spectator exactly. hanging around the yeah. house, yeah. or he would open up, he would put away um, bottles of, for example, Brunello di Montalcino mm -hmm. for important occasions. Yeah. So there was always this notion, but it was also something to me that always felt kind of like exclusive. Yeah. And in it, and since I moved to Italy, I realized how, you know, that's not the case. You can get incredible wine for nothing. We talked about that before as well. But I think a part of it is just visibility, too. Very much so. Right? And so, especially during the pandemic, everyone so. was looking at their social media. Maybe that's part of it. And then maybe it's also that people can say now, oh, yeah, I'm going to Italy because I just want to drink and eat for a couple of weeks. No, exactly. Yep. So, and there's nothing wrong with that yep. because that's... Culture just as much as Michelangelo's David is culture, yeah, right? No, no, it's really interesting. I think social media definitely, I mean, for you could say, you know, for better or for worse, for better I mean, or for it's, worse, it's, right. it's really changed things a lot. Honestly, for our business, we've had nothing but kind of positive, you know, kind of effects from it. I mean, it's as a small family run estate, it's given us an enormous amount of visibility, visibility that with, like 15 with, no, with virtually no investment. No, if exactly. You think about it, you're yeah. just taking pictures of your beautiful. You know, these beautiful sunsets yeah. and these beautiful dinners and showing your beautiful wines. And the world, I think, is, and yes, for good or for bad, because no. then that's sort of what I was asking you before about authenticity, Same. because I am a serious wine drinker and I don't want to go to a place where I'm being, you know, prodded and pushed and where I have <laughs> to fight to get a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah. I want to walk in. I want to be able to ask questions. I want to look. I want to wander. I want, you know, to Same. talk to you, to talk to the winemakers. I want to observe. For me, that's there's no difference um, between that and going to the Uffizi and standing in front of a painting. Yeah. yeah and, no, and, I completely agree. And so that's, it's, it's, you know, but right. at the Uffizi, you have to elbow people to be able to see, you know, right. Botticelli's Primavera. And so I think it's just, you know, you're trying to find that balance that we were talking about before yeah. and maintaining that also out of respect for the vision of Quercetto di Castellina. You're being very consistent with sort of, I think, with the whole, you know, with, with your mission and your, your vision for the yeah. company. Um, I want to talk a little more about the future. Okay. Um, you know, and it's, it's, I think it's important to have fun conversations like this, um, especially because the world is 
not always um, the best place these days. So it's nice to think about a future um, in terms of, for example, what do you have any big plans or what do you see as trends in the global wine business? Something that I was like not so surprised by, but a little surprised by was like how Spritz has taken over the world. Like, I don't know if you've seen, right? (laughs) So like, I'm not saying like, Mary, predict the next trend, but something like that, so random, right? Like all of a sudden everything's, you know, it's like the spritzification of the world, right? All of a sudden spritz became the most popular, it was Prosecco, then it was Rosé, now it's spritz. Do you see any trends or do you, do you at Corchetto have some sort of, do you have plans for the future? Anything interesting down the line that's going to be happening that you want to tell us about? Well, I know one, I mean, as far as kind of just like new products or things like that, I mean, we do eventually want to do some bubbles. Um, and uh, so that's, yeah. I mean, that's something. I mean, it's just, it's such, I mean, whenever you drink bubbles, you just kind of, you know, feel, it feels celebratory and fun. And um, and I think that we, that's the one thing that probably is kind of missing. We are actually, we're also going to be launching, um, we actually, we kind of did a little sneak peek of a Cabernet Franc. Um, which is kind of a, a passion project of my of my husband's. Oh. Um, so that's if that. you need any tasters. <laughs> <laughs> it's, if you need yeah. any, I'm happy to well, be your you. sacrificial right. lamb. Can... Any tastings? Any you know? If you need any blind tastings, any opinions, whatever, I'm happy can, to provide we can, them. We can make that happen. I love oh. the idea of doing bubbles, though, yeah. um, because I think that. You know, people have this this notion. Tuscany doesn't have a reputation for being yeah. um, uh, a, a bubbly making region. It's not Same. the Veneto. It's not Lombardia. Exactly. So, um, but there are good producers, and yeah. so it's interesting that that's um, that that's on your your wish list. That'll Same. make a lot of people happy. I think. I think so too. Yeah. No, that would. I think the bubbles are going to be great, um, and uh, we just have to kind of figure out, um, you know, kind of how we want to like what type of bubbles we want to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's bubbles. Um, we're always. I mean, we're always trying to think of ways to kind of enhance, you know, like the experiences right. and things like that that we can, um, you know, give to people. Also, um, I mean, our vacation apartments. You know, the buildings date back to the 1400s, so they're like 600 years old. So we always have projects to kind of just, you know, continue to improve and maintain Obviously. those over time. Yeah. Um, I would say, you know, we do want to do more if we, you know, if we can, we do want to move, do a few more events. Some, you know, not not too many, but mm-hmm. a few more because I think, you know, um, you know, one of the important things for us, um, and it's funny because you actually, you know, at the beginning of the conversation, you were saying, you know, you've heard so much about us from, you know, a lot of people, um, mm-hmm. you know, in the area and whatnot. Um, I love that we've been able to create a really strong community, um, you know, of people who, yeah. who love what we do mm-hmm. um, and, you know, love to come and visit us, um, mm-hmm. you know, numerous times. Um, right. And so I think if we can do more, you know, kind of more events and things like that to create mm-hmm. even more of a community for, for us, um, I think that's a big thing. Um, and uh, and I honestly, I think that's, that perhaps is kind of a, a trend, like in my humble opinion, I think. Tell me more about that because I think you're right. I've been seeing that the experiences trend. I say, um, and uh, yeah, because I think I mean we've talked about kind of the more a little bit about you know mass tourism or mm-hmm. um, and things like that, and I think people are seeking out more you know kind of like you know personalized That's curated right. experiences, mm-hmm. and I think because you always you want to feel a part of a I don't know like a. A community in a in a way, yeah. um, and uh, and so I think that that for us, um, 
is something that's rather, mm-hmm. you know, rather important. Right. Um, and, uh, and it's, and I mean, it's really, I mean, we've had such an amazing supportive community of people, not just here, but, you know, but abroad. Um, and it's made a huge difference um, in, in our business and kind of the way we do things. Mm-hmm. So, um, And I think you've defined yourself that way as well. I don't like to use the word branded, yeah. but I think what comes out, even just looking at your social media or talking to people who've stayed at Quercetto or who've been to one of the wonderful dinners you do or who have participated in any of the events there, just comes out that there is this sense of warmth and family and community. And I think that if you are traveling and if you are a lover of great food and great wine, chances are you're also a lover of really nice conversations and, and, you know, being surrounded by beauty. And so it's exciting to hear that, yes, you have projects but that are very much in line with that sort of authenticity that we've been talking about. Um, And so sort of in this similar vein, you've lived in Italy now for how many years? I've been here for about eight years. Okay. So what, how have, and you live right in the heart of downtown Florence. You don't live in in the Chianti. You you go there, but you don't live there. So what kind of changes have you seen in Florence since you first moved here? Oh, wow. Good and bad. Right, yeah. Um, well, I mean, obviously, you had, I mean, we had COVID, obviously, in the, in, you know, for, you know, good two, two, three years yeah. in there. So that obviously changed things, you know, quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like there's also kind of like this pre-COVID and kind of post-COVID, exactly. mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So it's um, the funny, God, this is going to sound, I don't know how it's going to sound, but it was really interesting because actually like COVID, it actually gave us time to focus on different things because we weren't. We didn't have the, you know, we didn't, we, I, think we were, we, I think that's a good thing. I think we, we tend to focus too much on all of the negative things that, that the pandemic brought with it. Yeah. But for a lot of people, it was a moment of true reflection yeah. and also call it, you know, reinventing or right. rebranding or just taking, uh, having that distance yeah. and time to See. say, oh, wait. So tell me more yeah. about that, because I like hearing sort of more positive sides of, of you know, the pandemic. Well, because we had to, I mean, for us, we had to find new ways of kind of, you know, staying connected with everybody. Yeah. So um, we started to do, I mean, like we actually like during the pandemic, most of the time, I mean, a lot of it, we were at the winery out in the countryside. So sure. um, but we started doing, I mean, like a lot of, you know, wineries, like live tastings and things mm-hmm. like that. We started doing live cooking classes. We didn't monetize any of that, though. I mean, it was all just more like opportunities for connection, visibility, exactly. whatever, just human contact, even through the screen, but some kind of, to try to maybe give some of that energy and, you know, yeah. keep it keep it alive, if you will. See, um, and that actually, I mean, I think that was actually really nice for us. It forced us to try, you know, doing different things, yeah. new things. Um, you know, my mother-in-law had never done anything where she, you know, someone was videotaping her, you know, doing, and actually, like, we did them in her, in her kitchen, like right. her family kitchen, right. so... Um, and I think for us, it really, um, it made a difference in, I mean, one, as I said, like being able to stay connected with people, but then also seeing just the importance really of, of doing that. Um, yeah. And then trying to like post COVID kind of once we did open up, trying to maintain that, you know, on, on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really interesting, actually, because like, I mean, with the vineyard dinners, I mean, they were always, you know, popular before COVID. It's going to sound nuts. They actually kind of almost like became more popular during COVID because we started doing, they were socially distant vineyard dinner so it was literally it was like the same long table but just with less people People. um and uh and they just really I mean honestly went kind of viral from there um and then and then just yeah and then just exploded um and I think it was also once again it was like people were seeking 
you know, ways to stay connected with people, but in a safe environment exactly. where they felt like they weren't, right. you know, kind of taking... And out know, in the middle of the countryside, you know, safe distance, et cetera. That was actually probably a brilliant idea to keep keep that going. And you yeah. gave a lot to people. So, I mean, it was a tough decision a, because, like, also you didn't even... It's risky. Know, it's you don't know. It's just, it's a it's a crapshoot. So, and, well, you didn't know how, I mean, because also then there was also whether, I mean, there was a lot of kind of, like, the even, like, just, like, the from a branding and marketing perspective, yeah. like, you just, you wanted to, you know, kind of be as respectful um, sure. and, and as possible, um, mm-hmm. kind of all things considered. Yeah. Um, but I think people were just, I mean, kind of just were really seeking ways to, to stay, you know, stay connected and do beautiful, exactly. you know, beautiful things and experiences. Um and then, you know, once, you know, kind of, I would say this year was probably the real 100% kind of no- Nor- what you want to call normal. Normal year, it was, um, yeah. And Florence, I mean, I think you probably, I mean, it just, it exploded this year. I've um, never seen anything quite like it. And yeah. I've been here for 25 years. Yeah. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah. And I don't know how to explain it. I don't know if it's all... I don't know, Stanley Tucci, if you're out there listening. <laughs> I mean, that the country of Italy yeah. thanks you. Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, had an, had an influence. Um, yeah. I also think, I mean, like Italy, it just, it's, oh gosh, I mean, um, for Americans, people, I mean, I think just, you know, like love Italy and have such an, a, you know, kind of affinity mm-hmm. for the country and the culture and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, and then I think, you know, once, you know, things did open up, um, you know, people took advantage. It was of on a lot of people's minds. Exactly. And, and I also think that it, it was the way Italy, um, came out during the pandemic. Yeah. And so it was, I think, places like yours that you, you know, you were doing these things, yeah. um, showing, you know, your mother-in-law in the kitchen, yeah. you know, doing cooking classes yeah. or doing live tastings or doing those socially distanced dinners. You were showing the world that, like many other people did, like that Italy was fighting this, you yeah. know, that we were, we were here and we're, we're still here, yeah. you know. Yeah. And, and I think that the country came out of the pandemic very well. And I think that also people are craving, and I say this a lot, but people are craving um, beauty yeah. and you know yeah. good food and good wine and good Same. conversation and those human connections. Same. And so I think that is one possible explanation of why Italy is a, is a, is such a popular yeah. destination. Yeah. We'll see how things go this year. La- I agree with you. Last year was the first real, you know, the normal year we saw. A major boom in tourism. Yes. I've heard from a lot of people that you know they already have bookings, you know, through the spring. So right. I mean, it looks like hopefully this year will be another good year for yeah. for Florence and I, Tuscany. Yeah, I think it'll be good. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be quite the same as this past. You know, this I don't past know. Year, that was a but, really big year. But we'll have to see. But this mm-hmm. year was nuts. I mean, I also yeah. do um, a little. I do travel planning on the on the side. It's a side hustle. Let's yeah, just say. Your si- I want to talk a little bit about that before we close. Your side hustle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you may as well tell, talk about that. Um, and I have to say that I mean that just I mean my it was it was a lot. There was I mean a lot of people wanting to come to Italy and whatnot. I also think because there is this um, sense of. I think there is still, I mean, yes, you have, obviously, you have your more touristy spots and things like that, but I think there is that kind of sense of authenticity or, like, you just, you feel, um, you know, kind of a bit like a home away from home in a weird way when you yeah. come when you come here, um, even if it's for the first, you know, the first time. No, and I, I think agree. that speaks to kind of also the spirit of, mm-hmm. you know, of Italians. That's um, right. And, uh, and the, the generosity, the, the sort of, and, and Florence is not notorious, I mean, we can say this, no offense to Florentines, but it's not notorious for being the most welcoming city in Italy, yet I've seen, even post-pandemic, it seems to me that people are actually 
I don't know, a little, a little friendlier, maybe. I don't know. Um, Possibly. Um, I mean, I think that it's. Um, I, I don't know. If, I don't know if to say. Oh gosh, now I don't know. Friendlier. Um, I. Uh, but I think there's this this warm. I don't know. I mean, you just you. I think people are happy to see people people back. Yes. And so friendlier. Yeah. Mm, maybe not. Maybe just more grateful yep. or appreciative to see that. Florence is still very much on people's minds. You See, know, Tuscany is probably, if not one, it's definitely one of the most popular destinations in, yeah. the, in the world, especially for what you're doing. Yeah, of course. So I'm so happy that you came today to talk oh, about Porchetta di Castellina. I hope um, maybe we could do um, a special episode. We could do a special video episode at the vineyard or something. I would love that. Um, when Who you knows? when you come, when, come. Maybe when you come to either the vineyard dinner or to do a little little sneak peek tasting of I'm uh, gonna need to do this. I think yeah. I mean I don't want to invite myself, but I mean I'll <laughs> definitely come to the community dinner. But I feel yeah. like I need to offer my services to be a volunteer <laughs> for the, both the Bubbly Project and the Cabernet Franc Fantastic. Project. Okay, so thank you so much, Mary. This was a really fun conversation, so and I have loved chatting about one of my favorite subjects, which is wine. So thank you again for sharing all of your knowledge and experience with us today here at 15 with Fosca. You are very welcome. And, uh, and we'll, we'll wait for you at Corchetta with, uh, with many glasses of wine. Oh, that you don't need to say anything else. <laughs> <laughs> grazie mille Prego. e grazie a tutti. Thanks again to Mary Shea for being such a great guest, for chatting with me about Quercetta di Castellina, and for giving us so much insight into winemaking in Italy today. Arrivederci e alla prossima volta.